This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. We've heard a lot of exegetical talks on Thomas, and this is more of a asking what kind of questions of how would we ask the same questions of Aquinas today when we confront issues related to neuroscience. So we're just going to think about the brain and other related empirical sciences. So neuroscience here isn't being used in a strictly technical sense, nor is cognitive neuroscience in my, my talk, or nor is neuropsychology. I'm not using these in the kind of technical senses. And an important thing that you learn when you talk to people from the UK, they use these terms in slightly different interdisciplinary ways than if you were to talk to a cognitive neuroscientist in the States, or in Canada, or in Italy, or in Germany. So that's also something that's of, of note, that they're not necessarily universal the way they use those terms anyway. But the thought here is not the kind of answering the questions of, is this true? But I'm going to be trying to ask questions of like, how would we re-ask Aquinas' questions today, where we have to now add additional questions, where we have to add new kind of inputs or things relating to the sciences. So it's going to be a, a kind of a pretty picture, uh, a sort of account of how you might think about answering sort of what questions of what might we think or what, how might we think about these sort of issues. So my outline is going to start, and you've got a lot of this on the handouts. So many of the things on the handout are also in the PowerPoint. Um, but first, just sort of a general thoughts about Thomas' philosophical anthropology after neuroscience. A number of TI talks and other things I've done have kind of covered these issues, so I'm going to run through that first, first part pretty quick. The second, then I'm going to get into some things relating to psychology, hylomorphism, powers ontology, and biological systems. Some of this is material that I've gone over before in TI talks, um, but some of it's new. And then I'm going to end by discussing um, some things having to do with human action and conversion to the phantasms 2.0. And I don't want this idea of conversion phantasms 2.0 to catch on. I really don't like it. Um, I just used it because I didn't have space on the handout to write what I would really want to call it. So go through your handout and cross out phantasms 2.0 every single time it occurs. Because I don't want to encourage anyone of using this or saying Dahan uses this. So anyway, um, we'll get to the, why I'm saying that later on. So just starting with some of these general remarks. So one thing that's really key to think about is how a scientific experiment in psychology or neuroscience comes to being. And often there's already existing research projects, research paradigms, there's already like kind of a trajectory of literature on certain topics, and grad students or PIs or labs end up focusing on developing a research project that's already been going on in a particular lab or moving in some new direction. They might want to run some studies on things having to do with memory, which memory gets subdivided into a lot of different special types of memories, procedural memories, habitual memories, long-term memories, working memory. Um, these all have a different kind of legacies and histories within um, neuropsychology and cognitive neuroscience. Um, but what they have to do is they have to take a psychological concept from somewhere, some sort of construct, and they have to operationalize it. So operationalization is a key thing that scientists have to learn how to do. They have to take concepts from ordinary experience or from philosophy or from sociology or from somewhere, and they need to find a way that they can operationalize it. That is, provide a kind of repeatable, measurable way of bringing that task out in a way that you could do it over and over again and that you could replicate it in different, um, different subjects where some other people might try to run the same sort of experiment and they could replicate it. Of course, the major crisis in neuroscience and psychology and social sciences that came about in the mid, the last, the last decade was an enormous uh, replication crisis where they discovered some of the most famous experiments that we all maybe make reference to as if they're just sort of almost dogmas of empirical psychology and social psychology. They aren't re replicatable. So there's a massive crisis um, 
but I don't want to get distracted on that. But if you're not familiar with this, you should know about this because it was an enormous thing that happened in the last decade. What's also impressive, though, is the amount of attention and critical scrutiny that the psychologists have mustered to try to overcome these problems in a way that I think would challenge if there was a similar kind of epistemological crisis in philosophy and theology, we might self-reflectively wonder wh whether we would actually engage it with the sort of same sort of uh, gusto that they did. So this whole point about operationalization is key because you need to ask where do these concepts come from and how clear are they about the concepts and what bearing do they have in our ordinary experience um, and what sort of philosophies have influenced the concepts that get operationalized in these different experiments. Where did the concept of memory come from? Where does the concept of love come from? Where did the concept of envy come from? Where did the concept of hate come from? Where did the concept of forgiveness come from? Where are these concepts coming from that are getting operationalized, where you're asked to work out something to do with love while sitting in a big fMRI tube, watching a television screen, and recognizing the limits of your tools, which are really powerful tools, but they're, what's the question of their ecological validity? Like, you know, putting a bunch of sisters inside of an fMRI tube and asking them to have religious experiences and see what's going on in the brain. Is this ecologically valid? Is that similar to the kind of, you know, cloistered environment under which they normally might be engaging in these contemplative prayer practices? So those are critical limits that some of these experimental methods use, and it's, it, a lot of scientists are quite clear about them and about the limits, and it's often journalists or people that popularize science that misrepresent these, um, these limits that are often quite critically um, articulated and very clear in um, scientific articles. But what's important is that these concepts get operationalized in the design and the implementation and then the later interpretation of the experiments. And one thing that anyone in the Aristotelian or Thomist tradition needs to recognize is it is highly unlikely, diminishingly unlikely, that the concepts deployed in contemporary psychology that are operationalized come from any kind of lineage related to Aristotle or Thomas, okay? Which means if you read a neuroscience experiment on memory or on hate or on love, it's very likely the concept operationalized there is very different from how Atomus would identify and understand it, okay? So you need to think very clearly about rival conceptual frameworks or ways of conceptually cornering human experience. We have these human experiences. We try to conceptually corner them. Whenever we talk about our, our experiences, what we're conscious of, we're always doing it in a conceptually laden way, which is not the same thing as to say that it's in a theory laden way. That's a rival views about conceptual ladenness. Some people think that if it's conceptually laden, it's therefore theoretically laden. Others would say that things can be conceptually laden without being committed to some sort of theory. This is a major dif distance between why I distinguish as folk psychology, which is the kind of major paradigm in philosophy of mind and a lot of psychology that all psychological discourse is theoretical, so it's always theory laden, whereas the Wittgensteinians and phenomenologists and other Aristotelians I'm sympathetic to would say that's just not true. Um, common sense and everyday experience is conceptually laden, but it's not theoretically laden. So there's going to be different traditions. I think of philosophy of mind as a tradition of inquiry. Um, it starts with an idea of physicalism, where physics tells us what the fundamental things are, and then we try to go around and make arguments about whether the mind has a place within reality. I think this is a massively distorted way to think about human beings. And I think that a rival tradition of inquiry, like the Aristotelian tradition of inquiry, has much different kind of starting point. It's a starting point that's going to have to be normative. It's a starting point that is going to have to think more about the humans you have conversations with, or it's going to be more like, what would an ethnographic report be of a human? So rather than saying, here's physics, can we find a place for minds in there? Yes, no, maybe they're reducible. Maybe they're abstract functions that are somehow realizable by physical states. Maybe they're property duals, and there's some sort of other kind of um, emergent um, entity. 
I think that's an extraordinarily distorting way to start thinking about human beings. So the point is that an Aristotelian should start not actually with hylomorphism. They should start with conversations. And what are the theoretical presuppositions that underlie the nature of having a conversation, the nature of engaging in everyday living practices? Um, something much more like what an ethnographer do, would do, what a cultural anthropologist would do, what Mary Douglas would do, or what Victor Turner or Clifford Gertz or someone like that would give us. That needs to be more the starting point. And that's eventually going to get to metaphysical issues, but that's going to be the place where it needs to start. If you don't think this way and appreciate these differences between these rival traditions and the way in which where are the concepts coming from that get operationalized in a scientific experiment, you're going to be prone and liable to a kind of naive correlationism is what um, Sarah Coakley describes in her Gifford lectures, where you just sort of grab something out of some scientific literature, and philosophy and theology are just full of this, where you know, oh, there's something about empathy in this scientific study, and I'm working on a concept of empathy, and here we go, we've got a neuroscience experiment that vindicates what either Stein had to say about empathy. Um, that's probably not what Stein meant by empathy in that particular scientific experiment, and so there's this is a real danger, and it's not just you know, Catholic philosophers and theologians that are guilty of it. There are lots of philosophers and theologians that are, that are guilty of it. So there's a lot more to be said about how we might avoid that kind of thing, but I just want to draw your attention to alerting it and making this like a huge hazard sign in the woods if you're trying to walk through the forest of engaging in interdisciplinary philosophy and theology and the sciences, especially with psychology and neuroscience. There are a number of other kind of fallacies or kind of errors of conceptual reasoning that can occur. Anthony Kinney's famous for talking about the homunculus fallacy. Peter Hacker's well-known for writing about the myriological fallacy. That's one of the core issues in that first book that I mentioned, The Philosophical Foundations of Neuroscience. So there's way more on those things and, and, and those um, sources within the handout. It's also important to have a sort of cautious appreciation for the authority that we should give to the concepts that are operationalized by psychologists and neuroscientists in their experiments. And what I mean here is, on the handout, I talk about different kind of curricula, but I think on the contrasting theoretical practices of education and inquiry, philosophers and theologians spend decades getting really careful about conceptual clarity. They don't spend decades getting really carefully thought to how you would operationalize those concepts in an experiment. They don't know how difficult and how brilliant the kind of rigorous thought that goes into operationalizing some psychological concepts. So scientists are really rigorous and really thoughtful about how to operationalize a concept in the design, implementation, interpretation of the experiment. But the concepts they get are often very flimsy and very shallow. And they just sort of grab them maybe out of a textbook or grab them out of some sort of research program that's already existing. They don't do decades of really careful critical reflection on the concepts that they deploy. So there's a lacuna in the different educational formation that we have. And it's important to appreciate those differences the kind of sociology of science and the sociology of your own education as a philosopher or theologian or whatever discipline you're in, um, to realize how, where the kind of blind spots are going to be in, in the different kinds of approaches, and why you can't just sort of say, well, this is what psychologists say about empathy. It's like, well, what do psychologists really say about empathy? They've got maybe a really brilliant experimental paradigm, but is the phenomena they're calling empathy one that you would recognize as empathy? Is it a rival concept of empathy? And how would you navigate that? So there has to be types of, ex there's a real exigency for interdisciplinary um, conceptual interrogation on both sides, okay? So that's my, my first part, just sort of summarizing a lot of hazards, a lot of things that you need to be really cautious about when approaching um, scientific literature, it's someone coming perhaps from the humanities. So next part's gonna get metaphysical, even though I said we were supposed to do some anthropology beforehand, but we don't have time for that.
which is always the excuse, right? All right, so this is my glib bit on the anthropology. I mean, we really have to start with everyday questions about who we are and what we are, and be reflecting on that. And we need to have thoughtful points about the way in which our common sense experiences are the point of departure for our theoretical inquiries. We, of course, also can't be naive about the fact that our common sense is saturated by technological and scientific and philosophical and theological in innovations. So theory has already saturated our common sense for centuries now. So even common sense is not exactly theory neutral. But when the theory kind of comes back into orbit from going around in space and it kind of has re-entry problems when it gets imp implemented within our everyday common sense, it's often mangled in all sorts of different kinds of ways. The public discourse about genetics is very different from like what a geneticist would actually talk about. So we have to be aware of those kinds of issues as well. But it's also, I think, important to recognize the ways in which our theoretical inquiries have to be accountable for common sense. You need to be actually to be able to verify them. These radically revisionist views about common sense based on theoretical inquiry, they have to be able to like verify that and vindicate that. And sometimes what's required from them is they have an onus to give us a really serious air theory. They need to give some account why we're so radically in air. And they rarely actually own up to that. They really rarely often actually give us the air theory that would explain why common sense is so deeply um, in mistaken or problematic and that we should adopt some radical theoretical revisions to it. One of the things that by thinking about who we are and what we are in this more anthropological way is we begin to recognize, I think, that there's a lot of different types of levels, I use that with caution, levels of inquiry. We need to think about ourselves ontologically, biologically, psychologically, personally, socially, and spiritually. And from a Thomas perspective, we're going to do that in a way where we're going to integrate them. We need to think about these to the extent that you can have a first-person perspective on them, that you could have a second-person perspective on it, or that could have a spectatorial third-person perspective on it. So which of these inquiries having to do with biology or psychology or social or personal factors could have all three perspectives and which ones could not? And why is that relevant and why would that change the way we think about things? And then there's going to be, within a Thomas framework, not an attempt to try to eliminate and try to overly parsimonize and get things down to just one factor explaining the whole, there's going to be a kind of explanatory, descriptive, causal, integrative pluralism. It's going to be a kind of pluralist approach that finds a place for the biological, for the psychological, for the personal, for the social and spiritual, and finds a way to kind of harmonize and integrate them within our account, recognizing that there's going to be different disciplines that are going to be specializing these in different kinds of ways. No ontology without prior phenomenology, all right? So I hope Father Brent likes that. Um, you don't get to the ontology without having some basis in experience. Okay, and phenomenology there I, I use in a very broad way. Um, anyway, there's more to be said about that. You can you can object to my slogan if you wish to, and we can we can I shall show you that you shall be deploying phenomenology in the basis of your objection to me. And then what will you say? All right. So, one of the first ways then to think about this, moving into the metaphysics, and then starting to think about how to coordinate neuroscience with respect to the soul, the powers, and their operations is a helpful distinction that Dan Dennett made between personal and subpersonal levels. Dan Dennett then later mangled it by adopting the intentional stance, and Jennifer Hornsby and John McDowell have good criticisms of that mangling and why this is a perfectly respectable distinction that got ruined. Um, but it's almost perfectly respectable, but it's not useful because it kind of makes it difficult to talk about frogs, which actually come up in some of these papers, and so they're still using the personal subpersonal. So, I prefer to slightly modify it as a psychological subpsychological distinction. Okay, minor revision, but I think helpful because we don't have to treat frogs as persons, but we can make a personal subpersonal distinction about them. 
broadly speaking, and we can get into the details of this later, but the personal, or the sub, or sorry, the psychological attributes has to do with things that are in principle conscious, in principle available from a first, second, and third person perspective. In principle, they're things that have to do with conscious awareness, perception, emotion, memory, imagination, inquiry, insight, reflective inquiry, critical verification, um, practical reasoning, intentional action, and so forth. And broadly speaking, we can characterize um, the sub-psychological attributes as those biological systems that subserve in some way directly these psychological attributes. So it's always going to be kind of an open question of how should we think of the relationship between the psychological and the sub-psychological. You can adopt this distinction and not really be clear about what you think the metaphysics is about how the psychological relates to the sub-psychological. You could be a reductive physicalist, you could be a instrumentalist, intentionality, stand, stand in it. You could be an anomalous monist. You could be a hylomorphist, which is the direction that I would suggest we should take for how we should think about this distinction. Um, so yeah, the examples I give here of sub-psychological capacities or attributes are things like neuroglial systems, endocrine systems, muscular systems, maybe cardiovascular systems, it depends on what you mean by that. Yeah, these sub-psychological capacities consist of our neural, glial, endocrine systems which uh, materially constitute and enable the psychological capacities. And that's already pushing us in a kind of hylomorphic way to put it that way. Um, it's important, though, that this distinction is not a panacea. It's not going to solve every problem. It's just sort of a, it's an important heuristic. I think there's reasons that we should defend it and try to vindicate it. But as I said, I'm not going to get into the answering the second kind of question of is it true. This is more of a what kind of questions that we're engaged in. Uh, I think it's important that it's not equivalent to the mental-physical dichotomy. It's not like the, the, the psychological means the mental, and then it's not the physical, and then the sub-psychological is the physical, and it's somehow independent of or extrinsic from psychological, which is why I think we can instead think of it hylomorphically. So I want to kind of push really hard whether Aristotle and Aquinas meant to do it, but Aristotle has a few lines about, um, and Aquinas repeats it, about the way in which the vision is like the form of the eye, the organ of the eye, and the way in which the soul is the form of the body. And I think we should take that really seriously, whether they meant it to be serious or not. We should take that in a very realistic way, and we should generalize it. We should think of every psychological power as a kind of zone of hylomorphic organization, all these psychological powers, at least that are embodied, that have some sort of material constitution that's organized by the power. And that's the way into thinking about this psychological, sub-psychological distinction. So, very crudely, the power of vision is a psychological attribute, and the visual nervous system, whatever that ends up being, is going to be thought of as a sub-psychological attribute. And that is the mater what's materially constituting, in a formally organized way, the power of vision. So on for our powers of audition, so on powers for speech, however we end up individuating all these different embodied powers. Okay? Importantly, when I'm saying this, it's not a version of property dualism, uh, Jonah might have to help me read this. A not a version of property dualism where conscious visual um, experiences would be one kind of property that would be extrinsic and distinct from the physical properties of the visual system. It's not like they're two extrinsic properties where one kind of in a weird way hovers above the other one. If it's hylomorphically conceived, they're going to be really tight. I mean, they're going to be ones, I mean, the, the material components are the material constitution that are formally organized within the power. So it's not a kind of two different properties in a kind of mental-physical dichotomy way. Now, you might wonder, how is this different from psychophysical identity theory or, non or reductive physicalism? I don't have time to get into that, but I have a really long ACPQ paper that came out 
this year. Um, and a really great volume that uh, Brandon Dom and Elena Berry edited for the American Catholic Philosophical Quarterly with a bunch of things on Thomas psychology. And in there, I, I respond to this sort of worry about, well, why isn't this just reductive physicalism? So the question then is, how exactly does hylomorphism help us to coordinate uh, psychological attributes with these neural and other biological systems that I'm describing as these sub-psychological attributes? Ontologically, hylomorphism is gonna, as I said, is a different metaphysical approach than the mental-physical dichotomy that you can use to define all the standard physicalist and dualist positions in philosophy of mind. For hylomorphism, you'd think of the psychological to psychological attributes, er, psychological attributes as form is to matter, as the soul is to body, as the power of vision is to the eye and the visual nervous system. But then we can also think empirically, too. We can ask a number of empirical questions about how we should think about this. And one of the major debates in, in neuroscience and what's sometimes referred to as neural cognitive architecture, which, again, be cautious about what cognition there means. It, often in cognitive neuroscience, cognition always means something sub-psychological. It rarely means something at psychological level in the way that I'm characterizing them. There's this debate about localism, holism, and neural reuse. And um, Mike Anderson has a book called After Phrenology from about seven years ago that gets into this. And then I also want to draw from what's really the dominant approach now in philosophy of biology called the new mechanist philosophy and help fill out a little bit scientifically how we might model some of these um, sub-psychological attributes and their relationship to the psychological ones. So this is a, a diagram, just a rough diagram from um, Michael Anderson. He also sometimes calls this uh, the massive redeployment hypothesis in a BBS article that he wrote about a decade ago. How should we think about the relationship of our psychological attributes to different parts of the brain? Are they like heavily modular? And Aquinas is basically a modularist. He thinks that there's these ventricles from Nemesius and, and others that, uh, Galen and Nemesius and others, and he thinks like, the sensus communis and the imagination are in the front ventricle, the cogitative power is in the middle ventricle, and the memory is in, in, in this lateral ventricle. It's not until da Vinci that we actually start realizing that they're not these big cavities, that they're more like horn-shaped. Da Vinci does these um, injections of wax into cow's brains, and that's how he sketches this out and figures it out. But he's a ventralist. Uh, he, you know, he, da Vinci has early illustrations of the three kind of cavities, and then he has later ones, these beautiful ones, where. He's done these illustrations of these, these wax injections that he's done. But Aquinas, anyway, he's, he's, he's a modularist. He thinks that these embodied powers are heavily localized. You might also be a kind of holist, which is kind of the way a lot of actually a lot of um, cognitive neuroscientists think of it, is that a lot of it's because they're thinking about neural nodes and machine learning. They kind of think any node within a network could do anything. It just really matters what placement it is within a deeper or less deep within a web. So you might think of, of a kind of holism in that sense. Or you might think of something like neural reuse, that one area can be used for multiple things depending on what network it's linked up in. So an area like called the fusiform gyrus might be really important when connected with some other nodes for rec recognizing faces. But maybe when it's connected with other things, it's good for and indispensable for recognizing objects that are familiar to you that aren't necessarily faces. So neural reuse is the idea that evolutionarily and then today that just different parts of the brain can be used in different ways when they they have different kinds of um, interconnections. So I tend to favor this, but I think it's an open empirical question. But the point is, is that we don't really have to take a stand on this. It's going to be an open empirical question. We don't need to think about whether or not the psychological attributes have to be located in one part of the brain in the sub-psychological system. You might think that it's highly distributed, like vision would be highly distributed from the eye, the optic nerve, the lateral geniculate nucleus, all the way to the occipital lobe. It probably also involves parts of the medial temporal lobe. It could be highly distributed. And those networks also might be used for something else 
They might be important for memory. Maybe some of these areas that have to do with recognition and, and memory in the medial temporal lobe are also important for, for audit audition in the auditory cortex. So they're used and reused in different kinds of ways. So anyway, that's an important debate, but it, it's one just to think about that just because Aquinas was a modularist doesn't mean that we have to be modularists. All right, now we're really gonna get metaphysical. So it's important for hylomorphism to think about it in at least three different modes or three different ways. Obviously, the most fundamental and the basic is substances. Substances are composed of form and matter. The soul is a substantial form of the body, but we also need to think about hylomorphism when thinking about these embodied powers. They're zones of hylomorphic organization for really detailed treatment of this in a way that's not inimical to, but not exactly cozy with Thomism. I would recommend William Jaworski's uh, Structure in the Metaphysics of Mind. I think it's like chapter eight or nine where he talks about biofunctional parts and has a really detailed, rich treatment of this kind of issue. But it wouldn't just be these inactive powers for vision or tactility or perceptual estimations or emotions or memory or executive functions, what I'm later gonna call Fantasia 2.0, but again, cross it out. You also need to think about the operations of these powers in a hylomorphic way. Okay, When these powers activate, they're activating these relatively stable subpsychological and psychological structures of those powers and their relative organ complexes. They're causing those organ complexes to activate in pattern kinds of ways. So it's not just enough to think about the powers of being zones of hylomorphic organization. When the powers operate or manifest or actualize, they're also going to be types of, within those powers, form matter organization. So within the powers literature, it's important that a lot of the contemporary metaphysics of powers literature is drawn on very strong neo-Aristotelian tradition. And one of the key things is that powers don't operate alone, uh, alone, that powers are always activating or co-activating with other powers. So here's a quote from a nice paper by Anna Marmodaro from a few years ago in a book that Jonathan Jacobs edited called Causal Powers from OUP. And Marmodaro writes that there are no lonely powers. All powers have power partners. Each partner power serves as a necessary condition for the existence and the manifestation, that is the activity, the operation, of the, the other powers. She writes, causal power powers are mutually activated from potentiality to actuality. All there is to their causal interaction is their mutual and simultaneous manifestation, heating and being heated. The power fulfilling the active causal role is activated, while the power fulfilling the passive causal role is activated and often changes as well. So one thing to recognize is this powers literature is a very Aristotelian, very non-human approach to causation. And it's not the dominant discussion in the metaphysics of powers, but it's a serious significant force. If you wanna look at where people are really doing Aristotelian metaphysics in really interesting ways, and I mean, there are some of our Thomas colleagues that are doing this kind of thing, like Rob Coons or David Oderberg and um, Travis Dumsday and other, other kinds of folks like that are contributing to this literature in really rich ways. And Marmaduro's, Anna's, she's Thomas friendly um, and has written a lot on Aristotle as well. So it's important to recognize this, that these powers are always gonna be co-manifesting, right? We need to think more about systems of powers and the powers are activating. One way those powers co-manifest is our internal powers co-manifest, right? We think about the senses activating the passions. We think of practical reason, as Tom described, specifies the will. That's reason co-manifesting or co-operating with the will. I mean, the whole point of the virtues is to bring about a coordinated co-operation of the powers acting together in a kind of harmony, right? So even though the terminology is a bit strange, this is 
just basic Thomism when it comes to what the virtues are supposed to be doing for our psychological powers. But there's not only the sort of powers, our internal powers of our substance are co-manifesting or co-activating. There's also our powers are co-activating with other substances. I'm speaking to all of you. It's causing the co-manifestation of percussions throughout the ambient and energy of the, you know, the room. That's activating your auditory cortex and your powers of audition. If you're actively listening and not buying shoes on Amazon, Tom. <laughs> okay, he's not. It's causing the, your powers to, to activate, as well as you might be receptive to that activation or you might be you know, drawing your attention to something else. So there's two ways in which our powers can manif co-manifest. The internal powers of a substance as well as our powers of a substance can co-manifest with other powers of other substances. This is a really key point because Thomas and just Aristotelians in general tend towards what I would call hylomorphic atomism. They get the substance and the hylomorphism and the powers right, but they're just lonely substances that don't really interact with other powers. And most of your powers are always co-manifesting with other powers. So we don't want to end up saying something like hylomorphic atomism, but that's sometimes the picture that we often give. So it's important to think that there's actually systems of continuously interacting hylomorphic substances via their powers co-manifestations, okay? Another contentious thesis where a lot of people aren't gonna follow me on, but some people will. Power realists often also are nominological anti-realists. You don't need laws of nature anymore, and they certainly don't do anything. Laws of nature are just abstract descriptions of regularly manifesting causal powers. The human has to make them necessary because there's no causal juice in the world. So they have to make them all necessary and that you've always experienced in this kind of way and it's a totally epistemological kind of laws of nature. But if you don't have God, you know, you can't have laws as Nancy Cartwright writes in a famous paper of hers, no God, no laws. Um, so a lot of people that are power realists think that you can be an eliminativist about laws of nature, or you at least can be a reductionist about laws of nature. Laws of nature are just abstract descriptions of the regular ways that powers co-manifest. Electrons are always co-manifesting and negatively charged, have negative charge, and laws of electromagnetism uh, and, and dynamics, these are just descriptions of the ways in which electrons are always co-manifesting in patterned ways with either protons or repelling with respect to other electrons. In other words, laws of nature aren't real causal difference makers. It's powers that are difference makers. The laws of nature, as I said, they're just merely abstract descriptions of regularly co-manifesting powers of systems of hylomorphic substances. Now, this is important because this necessitation gets shifted and put in a different place. It's now conditional necessity of the powers and their manifestation, not laws of nature dictating. So it's gonna completely change the way you think about the free will problem. It's not gonna function in any of the ways that it works in the standard free will, philosophy of mind kind of debates. Powers manifest according to conditional necessity. Okay, this is just standard Aristotle, stuff out of the physics. The manifestations of powers are defeasible due to interferences. Some powers can overpower other powers, right? There can be a complex of powers that are co-manifesting and something else is more powerful, interrupts it, causes it to stop, modulates the way the manifestations take place. Um, yeah, with respect to their coordinated manifestation. It also enables us to be causal power pluralists. There can be lots of different kinds of powers. There can be biological, psychological, personal, social, spiritual powers. They can co-manifest in different integrated kinds of ways. Some of them might be the more important causal explanatory factors in some cases. Sometimes there's gonna be a mutuality amongst them. Sometimes one is gonna be the most important. Sometimes all of them are gonna be fundamental. There's gonna be the nested hierarchies of powers and their coordinated hierarchical manifestations. 
So the important question to ask, and this is on the handout, is you know, which powers in any circumstance are primarily actualizing, so efficient causality, organizing or coordinating formal causality, directing by finality or final causality teleology, the co-manifestations of other powers. So powers are always co-manifesting, but there are often some that are in a, in, a, in a metaphor we should cross out as soon as I say it. There are some that are in the driver's seat and the others that are not, okay? So which are the powers that are bringing about and directing the coordinated co-manifestation, right? So you, know, you might think that my speech is what's causing the coordinated manifestation of your auditory cortex and your powers for hearing and your perceptual powers of recognizing speech, what's driving that and what's actualizing, coordinating, directing that is my speech, okay? You might instead have your attention focused on buying shoes on Amazon and so your practical reasoning or your concupiscent passions are directing you to this wonderful shoes and that's what's driving and directing the coordinated manifestation of your different powers. This then becomes very important to recognize that what's happening psychologically with the will and the intellect when they're engaged, and this is getting us towards fantasy a 2.0, not an underline, cross through. Intellect and will don't act on the brain, okay? Intellect and will are co-manifesting with our embodied psychological powers. They're interacting with the power of memory, the passions, the cogitative power. They're directing and guiding our perceptual activity. If I need to do something intentionally, like run across the street for a formal dinner, right? What's driving that and guiding that perceptual motor action is practical reason and will. They're the ones that are causing the actualization, coordination, and direction of why all the embodied powers, the passions, and the perceptual activities are orienting and paying attention to what they're paying attention to, okay? So very importantly, it's not like a property dualist. It's not like a strong emergentist, where the strong emergentist has the eked out mind stuff that comes from the physical properties being organized in the right kind of way, in the brain maybe, and then you get like some mental stuff and it's a distinct property that's extrinsic from the physical properties, and then the mind stuff acts back down on the brain. That's not the picture here, okay? If you're thinking of it that way, I'm sorry. So it's the embodied psychological powers that are hylomorphically constituted from these sub-psychological powers. But we can get a better model of what exactly are these sub-psychological powers, these biological powers, by drawing on some really rich stuff from the philosophy of science, and particularly philosophy of biology and the new mechanist philosophers. It's important to distinguish what's going on here. You can have a lot of different ontologies, and you can have different philosophies of neuroscience, of which there do exist. These philosophers of science, maybe some of you are them, they really don't like metaphysics, typically, not always. They're, they're not really interested in metaphysicians dictating what science should be. They're not dictating what philosophy of science should be. So I'm not trying to impute these views. They would be horrified, probably. Most new mechanists would be horrified if I was saying this is a great view that hylomorphous, you know, you guys are all hylomorphous. They would be horrified. Um, so I'm not telling you that these people are hylomorphous, all right? They might also be horrified if you said that they were non-reductive physicalists, um, but they'd probably be more allergic to the hylomorphic one claim. So it's the new mechanist philosophy is a philosophy of science, especially biology, neuroscience, and psychology. And this is itself different from actual scientific inquiries. Now, a lot of people working in this literature have like a neuroscience background or have a, a background in molecular biology, but they're doing different kinds of things. So I just want to show you that there's a way in which you would want to, I, I would want to integrate these different 
approaches, but recognizing their differences and recognizing their distinct kind of commitments. Kind of going back to that point I made earlier about kind of a sociology of the different disciplines and what's their educa educational background, what is the kind of theoretical inquiries they're engaged in. So I said before that the sub-psychological attributes are gonna be things like neural, glial, um, endocrine, and other kind of biological systems. And what are these sub-psychological organized material components of a hylomorphic animal's embodied psychological powers? And we can turn really briefly to the new mechanist philosophy of neuroscience. Now, I've talked about this before at TI events at, um, here in the Dominican House of Studies and in a number of other places, so I'm gonna go through this pretty quickly. Um, I'm sorry about that for those of you that's new, but as I said, I stuffed this with a lot of stuff and I gotta get to other things. So importantly, new mechanists think of mechanisms very, very differently from the traditional conceptions of mechanisms. For them, mechanisms are not machines, they're not deterministic, many are st stochastic, they're not reductionist. In fact, most require multi-level irreducible ontic structures where the higher levels are not the same thing as the lower levels where they have different causal properties or powers at the higher level than what they have at the lower level. They're not always localizable. Some are often highly distributed in the brain, for instance. But they're also not fictions or metaphors or explanatory heuristics, for they describe and explain ontic structures, that is, real structures, in the world. So what are the mechanisms for the new mechanists? Carl Craver's really monumental magisterial book, Explaining the Brain, the OUP book, sums up a lot of this literature. There's also a great Stanford Encyclopedia article that he and others wrote called Mechanisms in Science that summarizes a lot of this and the diagrams I'm taking are from him. Mechanisms are entities and activities organized such that they exhibit the explanandum phenomenon. That's the fourth one. So there's four elements. So you see the phenomenon, some sighing, that is some psychological activity as the overall whole Maybe a psychological activity like remembering your way back through that maze that you all have in your garden in the backyard or something like that. That itself is constituted from a bunch of X phi's, so a bunch of physiological components, so maybe a bunch of components in the brain. Those components themselves have various distinctive proprietary, maybe not necessarily proprietary activities, that's three. But also key is their organization. You change the organization, the organization can't function in the way that it's supposed to function. Those components and then those activities aren't going to give rise and constitute the psychological activity of remembering how to get your way around in the maze, okay? The causal power of the whole, of the mechanism of being able to navigate spatially is different than the causal powers or the causal properties of the, say, neurophysiological systems that con constitute that activity. There's a lot here that sounds very hylomorphic, and I've written a paper that walks through, I hope carefully, this maze of what's the difference here between hylomorphism, what are the similarities between some of these things to try to say, you know, it's not the same thing. They don't think, for instance, there's some form here that makes the components to be what they are, and that's gonna be a crucial thesis of Aristotelian hylomorphism, at least. But they're also hierarchical. So we start at the top, we had the sighing, right? Some psychological activity, like navigating in a maze, and it was constituted from, say, you know, maybe this neural system in the medial temporal lobe of the brain, but also maybe some um, perceptual recognition features in the occipital lobe or the parietal lobe, maybe some also frontal lobe things. So those first circles in the first, first level down might be huge regions that are highly distributed in different parts of the nervous system. But each of them are gonna be composed of distinct kinds of neurons, distinct kinds of neural networks, some neurons that synthesize epinephrine, some that synthesize dopamine, some that um, synthesize cortisol. There could be a range of different kinds of neurons. So you can keep going down. 
The high mechanism, the higher level mechanism, is itself constituted from components, but those components can only do what they do because they're composed of entities with characteristic activities that are organized in the right kind of way. And you can go all the way down to the genomic level. You can think about the organelles within individual cells, and those are also going to be mechanisms. Lindley Darden, one of, I think was Craver's uh, doctoral dissertation director, she's used the same paradigm to think about molecular biology. Craver's thinking much bigger picture, but there's people who've done the, the kind of really, really small scale stuff to use the new mechanist stuff as well. But you can also do bottom up as well as top down interventions. You do an intervention in the maze, you change it a little bit and the rodent gets confused. That's gonna change the way in which the cascade of constitutive components activate or don't activate. But of course you can also do bottom up interventions. You could knock out or wipe out a bunch of the neurons at the lower level, like lesion them, or you could use something fancy like optogenetics, where you, well, it's too complicated, but it's, you know, it's not exactly the agent intellect, but you put an optical fiber, you know, fiber optic cable somewhere in the brain. You've already made these cells somehow especially light sensitive. You turn the light on and those neurons turn on and it makes the whole process behave differently. So now uh, Tom can quit looking on Amazon for his shoes and he can look up optogenetics and rats and you can see really cool experiments of what they do with them. I wish I had a video, but I don't. Anyway, sorry, Tom, I'm just teasing you. Uh, you, you, you. You do it to them. You put, you put uh, the, the fiber optic cable. Anyway, look it up later and watch some of these videos of what the kind of things that you can do with um, optogenetics. Here's the example that Craver uses where you can see how complicated the mechanism, how it's constituted. You have down all the way at the bottom an NMDA receptor and how that itself is a component within a higher level system, namely neurons inducing long-term potentiation, which is important for types of memory formation. But the neurons themselves are all gonna be constituting a neural network or a neural assembly, like things having to do with a, a part of the brain, like the hippocampus, and that itself is gonna be constituting other networks within the brain that allows the mouse, or at least materially allows the mouse to do something like get through a maze. All right, so you can kind of see a little bit, I hope, the way in which um, that philosophy of science model provides a way for filling out what exactly we're talking about in a less hand-waving way with respect to these sub-psychological attributes, right? The power, I said, is hylomorphically constituted by a bunch of material components that are organized in a certain kind of way. Well, what does that mean? Well, the new mechanist approach provides a really rigorous account, a really detailed account, looking at contemporary neuroscience, of saying, here's what these material components might be, here's the kind of organizations that they are, here are the kind of powers that they might have, and here's how they function in, in a deeply nested kind of hierarchy. So this is a model that we can use to think through in a less hand-waving kind of way what exactly are these sub-psychological attributes that materially constitute psychological attributes, these embodied psychosomatic powers. So now to the third part, human action and conversion to the phantasms 2.0. It's of course to remember very grand, important texts like Danima 2, Chapter 4, where Aristotle tells us we want to know about psychic natures, but we can only know about them through their powers, but we can only know about powers through their operations, and we can only know about their operations through their objects, things that are repeated, repeated and repeated by Thomas, like in question 77 of the Prima Powers of the Summa, before he starts actually treating all the different powers of the soul. So you have to, and Father Brent was quite right, one way to learn about what the powers are is open up Aquinas, question 78 of the Prima Pars, and read that all the way until you get to question 83, and now you know all the powers. Or you can look at uh, Disputed Questions on the Danima, Article 13, or you can look at, not to disappoint Tom Osborne, Dahan diagrams that, that go through all the details of these things, just to complement some of Brent's 
uh, diagrams, because I, I like his, because he actually talks about the eye doing these things, whereas mine, there's no eye, which is a huge problem. Um, there's supposed to be an eye, but I didn't mention it. Um, but you can see one way that this works by going from our unified conscious experiences. Thomas divides up 11 different proper objects to give us the, or 13, to get the different kinds of powers through the different operations. Uh, here's my slogan. But the only way you could do this with the objects and operations is not to do it by starting with metaphysics. No ontology without prior phenomenology. You need to actually be experiencing these objects and operations. And only then can you shift to then doing a metaphysical or ontological analysis of what, what constitutes these objects and operations, and then what constitutes the powers that ground them, and then what constitutes the nature that grounds the powers that are the um, bearers of these operations and activities. And when you do that, you might end up individuating the powers slightly different than Aquinas. You engage in the same systematic inquiry he did, but he has a rival view of the internal senses to Albert's, and Albert and Aquinas disagree with Avicenna and Averroes. So if we were to re-ask those questions ourselves, drawing on the riches of a lot of new things we, we, we know now, we might end up with a slightly different individuated account of the internal senses, for instance. But first, what we would need to establish is that, for instance, humans can, human actions can be constituted by the coordinated co-manifestations of a human person's powers of reason, will, conscious and active sensory perceptual experiences, emotions, memory, imagery, and speech. In other words, what am I doing? Well, I can break down what I'm doing right now as involving a lot of those activities. I can do them in a coordinated way. And I might start to then individuate some of these powers. Maybe we wouldn't individuate them the way I just did. Um, that was kind of anecdotal. It's not like a really deep, rich way of distinguishing them. But if you individuate the powers, that's all you're doing. You haven't yet made a distinction between disembodied and embodied powers, right? You're only going to later reach that distinction. In fact, the default would be to think that all the powers are going to be embodied. That's the kind of default view for the hylomorphist. What you're going to then begin to reflect on is that there's something distinctive about the ontological constitution of rational and volitional operations such that you need to think about them in a way that's disembodied, all right, if those arguments are cogent. And then you're going to have to think that the power that grounds them is also something disembodied. And therefore, there has to be something really unique about the human soul, that it's not just the form of the body, but it's somehow something that can ground per se subsistent operations, so it itself has to be per se subsistent. That's the way that inquiry works. Right? That's the systematic form that Aquinas would arrive at that. How would you vindicate that today? How would you rerun that argument? Much later, we can establish that reason and will are disembodied powers distinct from all the hylomorphically embodied powers of human persons. This is the distinction that I made the other day in the comments, just to repeat it, because I hope it's helpful. It is on the handout, I think. But just, it's going to be one supposit that acts, but acts via two subjects of inherence, or two grounds of inherence, if you can run that cogent argument for why some of these powers have to be disembodied. The soul body composite is the ground or subject of inherence of all these embodied powers, so all these psychological powers that have sub-psychological material components. And then the rational soul grounds or is the subject of inheritance of these disembodied intellectual powers, the agent and possible intellects and the will, which don't have organs that materially constitute them, that don't have sub-psychological components. So don't think about them hylomorphically, at least not where matter is supposed to be really matter. All right, conversion of the phantasms 2.0, and I'll, I'll get going. So what I want to do here is it's important to try to rethink what exactly it means or help maybe have some conceptual therapy um, to think through how to, what fantasy it might mean 2.0 and why we want to hold Aquinas' thesis that the intellect is always converting to the phantasms and what that could mean. So as I said, um, 
what I want to think about for Fantasia is instead, in 2.0, is more like what is the intellect and reason, will always engaged with? What's it ubiquitously, ongoingly engaged with? In other words, what's it always co-manifesting co with, cooperating with? It's something like our ongoing embodied and active conscious experiences. They're ongoing because if you're awake right now or you're alert, there's a range of sensory powers that are all activating right now. Okay? And if you're identifying any objects or paying attention to any objects, those are more embodied powers that are activated. Right? And it's often inactive. You're not still. You're moving around. You're adjusting. You're trying to hear better. You're wishing Dehan's talked a lot slower. I apologize. I'm so sorry. I have a problem. It's conscious. It's something that you're aware of. And they're experiences. Okay? There's a phenomenology to them. And I don't mean phenomenology like qualia or nonsense that philosophers of mind talk about. I mean more so like proper phenomenology, you know, Husserl, Merleau-Ponty, Heidegger, these guys. Watiwa, James Brent. Bernard Lonergan, um, those kind of people. Now, one pet peeve of mine is, a lot of people have been mentioning this stuff about the cogitative power. I've written a lot about it, and I'm only gonna say like one little thing, because Tom thinks I only ever talk about it, and I'm only gonna talk about it in like two sentences, and then I'll be done, so he can't say that about this talk. But the main phantasms, are not images of the imagination. The main phantasms that Thomas is talking about are cogitative phantasms. Their particular intentions form the cogitative power. The prime, phantasm is a kind of a loose term that can strictly mean just what the imagination forms, but all that the imagination power, the imaginative, imaginative power forms is the retention of per se sensibles, just sensible qualities, color, shape, sounds, magnitudes, shapes. You're not abstracting a tree from color, shape, magnitudes. You're abstracting a tree from some particular intention, some aspectual, actional, affectional intentions or perceptibles that the cogitative power has apprehended. Okay? There's something like individual meanings. Aquinas calls them particular intentions. Right? They're like what James Gibson calls affordances, if you're familiar with Gibsonian ecological psychology or what some of the embodied or radical inactivists talk about, like Alvin Noe or uh, Daniel Hudo or Sean Gallagher or some of these guys. So that's the main kind of phantasms. And for humans, the main phantasms are cogitative intentions that are integral to speech, okay? Children learn to identify things without like a great competency of speech, but that's providing a scaffolding of that experimentum. The main thing in experimentum is, for us in our inquiries, are, are features of like speech, okay? That's the main way in which phantasms are indispensable. David Brain calls this thinking in the medium of words. All right, it's indispensable both for like a gaining intellectual knowledge and it's indispensable to applying theoretical and practical knowledge. So that, that's an exegetical point about Thomas. Now, furthermore, Thomas, I also think, thinks that our conscious sensory, exper our sensory experiences are conscious independently of phantasms. So that's why I also want to put a line through fantasia because fantasia is technically something you can do without the objects in the world. And we're not conscious of sensory objects by fantasia as in like imagery. Imagery is something that's retained from already having occurred conscious experiences. The conscious experiences are conscious through the sensory acts. You don't need fantasia or phantasms to make them conscious. They already are conscious. Imagery is a distinct mode of being conscious. It's being conscious of imagery, sensible qualities that you're forming in your mind without those qualities being in the world necessarily here and now. All right, exegesis of Thomas stuff is was done. Other kinds of phantasms, though, are memories. That's also important. So autobiographical memories and things like that. So other kinds of Fantasia 2.0, but again, cross it out, 
is that intransitive consciousness, that's one of the things that I mean by Fantasia 2.0. Intransitive, intransitive consciousness just means being awake, just means being alert, all right, rather than having a dreamless sleep or something like that, or being in a coma, or being anesthetized. Um, and if I was Jeremy Wilkin, I'd like quote something from Eliot, but I can't remember exactly what the Alfred Prulock, Prufock. It's also gonna involve conscious attention, right? So insofar as you're having alertness, right? Insofar as you're conscious of objects, your intellectual activity is always saturating that, right? That's ongoing conscious awareness of objects that's coming in at you, and intellect is trying to penetrate that, trying to make that actually intelligible. That's also part of what it means to be converting or turning to the phantasms. There's also the inactive embodied sensual perceptual experience, or the background consciousness. There might be sounds in the background that you're not paying attention to. Those are always coloring and shaping and giving a horizon for the kind of whatever you're paying attention to in your intellectual activities. And then as David Brain draws our attention to, we're often thinking in the medium of words, and those are types of phantasms too. Okay, so Fantasia here, 2.0, again, it's misleading because that's really kind of like a way of describing the internal sensorium. And by this, I really mean just our, the totality of our embodied experiences, which are always happening. These powers are always co-manifesting with other objects in the environment. And they're always shaping and setting a setting for our intellectual and volitional activities. Okay. All right. So a number of ways in which this is important then. You need to think about Fantasia 2.0 is it's always, it can be co-manifesting with the agent intellect and the activity abstraction. So Lonergan's very helpful that we don't just think about abstraction of the agent intellect in a strictly metaphysical way, where we think of it as like the unrestricted desire to know, to ask questions. Abstraction's not unintelligent, it's intelligent. You're always asking questions and moving around the constellation of data. You're trying to figure out what's the intelligible pattern there. You're asking all these what questions with respect to it. But that requires the co-manifestation of these powers of fantasy at 2.0 with the agent intellect. That allows for insight, conceptualization, and the thematization of understanding, as well as it enables rational critical evaluation assent and verification. Oh, sorry, that was the next one. So, Fantasia 2.0 is the co-manifestation of Fantasia with agent intellect and the possible intellect. But then there's also the co-manifestation of practical reason or practical intellect, co-manifesting with the will and Fantasia, which is what occurs when you engage in intentional and invol voluntary embodied conscious human action. Something kind of like what Aquinas calls the interior act and the exterior act of the human action. So this gets pretty technical here, um, but I hope that a lot of what I've had to say here, you can kind of fill out the rest of what's going on in the handout. Um, human actions are gonna be constituted then. You can see how this starts to apply, give you a more deeper metaphysical way of thinking about interior and exterior acts, what Aquinas is talking about in like question six through 21 in the Prima Pars, where he's treating out his action theory and getting into the moral object and how interior acts and exterior acts are related. Tom has some really helpful essays on this topic and the, what's the difference between Aquinas on the interior and exterior act versus like SCOTUS and Occam. Um, but what I'm trying to bring here is some of the things that we can add with these co-manifesting powers. So we can draw features from the metaphysics of contemporary causal powers literature to really fill out a picture that was there all along. But also it can help us figure out what exactly are these sub-psychological neuroscientific properties doing here. And what's happening is when practical reason and will are causing our embodied powers to manifest, those embodied powers are constituted from all of these neural, endocrine, and other mechanisms that causes their manifestation, right? So by causing the actualization, coordination, and directing of our embodied powers, manifestations, reason and will, it thereby forces all the material constituents of those embodied powers to also activate 
in all the appropriate ways that's required for those activities of memory or walking or having an emotion or having reason-directed perceptual you know, guidance when walking around. So that's basically what's going on here in this, this last little bit of the handout. This importantly then helps fill out the way in which Aquinas is a disjunctivist about human action, right? Some of these powers, the embodied powers, might be activated in multiple different circumstances, but what helps us identify if it's a human action or a per, a just a kind of behavior or a kind of instinctual reaction, it's what, again, going back to this question, which powers are primarily actualizing, um, organizing, and directing the manifestation of other powers? So an intentional action, like here's a really dangerous situation, I have to get out of here, but I yet have rational self-presence of mind to realize there's no way it's gonna be safe to stick around here, and I have to get out of here. And reason is what's guiding the co-manifestation of your motor, perceptual, and other powers to get the heck out of there. Now, even though there's the moving of those powers and the running away of the situation in what Aquinas might call like an antecedent passion or instinctual flight mode, it's a different thing. It's not a human action. It's a type of instinctual behavior. Why? Because it answers the question differently. Which powers are primarily actualizing, coordinating, and directing the manifestation of these embodied powers? Well, it's another embodied power, namely estimative power or instinct or something like that. That's what's causing the coordinated manifestation of what, from like a thin description level, looks like more or less the same running away from a situation. And then third, you have it in the middle here, coerced activity, which is unintentional and involuntary, where some of my fellows think that you're just trying to be tough to Han, and you can't handle yourself in this dangerous situation, so they drag me out of there, which wouldn't be hard to do, it's obvious, right? I mean, it'd be pretty easy to pull me away. Um, that's a different kind of action, too, because of what's guiding and the coordinated manifestation of my body exiting the situation are extrinsic substances, and they're causing the lifting of me and the moving of me from the vicinity. So. The only last point that I want to make, and I apologize for going so long and so fast, is it also helps us think through these quick lines that Aquinas has about if you had this damage to the brain somewhere, you had this lesion here, or you were hit on the head, why would that distort and affect intellect? Intellect's disembodied. It's not a power that's constituted from an organ. Why on earth would having a brain injury have any effect on reason and will? Utomists are silly for thinking these powers are disembodied. Don't you know if you get hit over the head or if you have a lesion in a certain area of the medial temporal lobe, you're gonna have memory deficits? Like, what's going on here? Here's a story, okay? Here's a picture for how to answer that. Any one of these uh, different types of um, neurophysiological disorders are often gonna involve either genetic factors that affect the way that the neurons function, they might affect the glial cells that have different kinds of sustaining roles, but also some signaling roles with neurons. You might have a lesion, you might have cancer, you might have a sort of acute amnesia due to some sort of getting hit over the head. What's happening is there's some disturbance at one of these levels of these mechanisms, whether it's genetic, whether it's at the level of the neuron, whether it's the level of neural patterns and connections, whether it's a whole brain region. Any one of those things that gets knocked out is gonna prevent that network of organized components from manifesting. And if the lower level can't activate, it's gonna screw up the way the middle level works. And if that messes up, it's gonna work out the way the higher level works. And as I was saying, all these embodied psychological powers are constituted from all these material components. You knock some of them out, and it's gonna cause some sort of impediment, or maybe the complete lack of the ability for the power to function in any way whatsoever. Why does this matter for reason and will? 
Well, because these embodied psychosomatic powers are always co-manifesting with practical reason and will in lots of different kinds of ways, as I meant by Fantasia 2.0. If it can't co-manifest with these embodied powers, then of course reason and will can't be active. So there's no objection to the disembodied thesis. If we can defend the disembodied thesis on these grounds, because it has to co-manifest with these embodied powers, and we have a pretty neat story here about why these embodied powers can be disrupted by brain injuries. Because all these embodied powers are materially constituted from these different kinds of mechanisms, um, from these types of neural systems that are highly nested with powers, built out of powers, built out of powers. All right. With that very long and very fast talk, I will end. Thank you. Okay, so um, there was a point you made about Marmadoro, I think that's how you say it. Yep. Um, and so she said that if a power, like these power partners are necessary to uh, like co-activate with another power. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, okay, so I don't understand this. Like, if it's a necessary condition of one power to have another power activated, how do you not have a reduction of like a system of substances that are all power partners? Because, I mean, if every time one power activates, all these other powers need to be there. I, I don't, uh, what's the distinguishing feature like how do you not have that network of okay yeah why are you asking like a tough metaphysics question I thought we were gonna get a neuroscience one from you <laughs> it's important for neuroscience yeah so I mean this is this is a this is a really like legitimate debated kind of topic about the individuation of the powers. so yeah. one you could maybe disagree with the kind of strength to which Marmador made some of those claims Jorsky has a pretty good treatment of this about power complexes and their manifestations uh, Oderberg has a little bit of it talking about the kind of indifference of the range of ways in which they can co-activate. They might have a range of different power partners. So they're gonna be individuated by a range of different kinds of power partners. So that's one way to try to address some of these metaphysical issues about the individuation, is that they don't necessarily have one set of active or passive powers that they activate with. Um, the other thing is, is that um, some of it could be to just sort of limits of explanatory interests. Um, and others are factors of how do you, because that's gonna come into whether or not you're considering it really a legitimate interference or whether it's just one more power that's manifesting with these other powers, and then th that's the kind of complex that you should identify. Um, yeah, so in one way, the system could be pretty deterministic if all these powers are one way, but I think there are two-way powers. And two-way powers can manifest in two different ways. Their manifestation is determined by their conditions of manifestation, so if other power partners are causing that power to manifest, they will necessarily manifest, but they can manifest in different ways. No, like th they can will or they can nil. No, that wouldn't be then. Because even though the power necessarily manifests, because the other causal powers cause it to manifest, like practical reason might necessarily cause the will to manifest, but the will doesn't need to will what reason specifies. The will could manifest instead by nilling what reason specifies. And then no exterior action happens. Uh, thank you for the talk. Um, so in my neuroscience department, the neuroscientists are absolutely obsessed with the will. They study decision making. And so what they do is they find something that looks very much like the will in <coughs> mice. So they'll have a mice run down a maze, it'll you know see some towers on the left or the right, and then it'll have to make some decision about where to go to get a reward. Uh, and so they then they try to find like the, the neural mechanisms that ground this sort of behavior and then extrapolate to something about human will. 
So I guess the, the first question is, what would you label that power in an, as in an animal that looks very much like the human will but isn't? And then the second question is, is that when you are looking at humans, you're t you talked about the coactivation of powers. Is it ever possible to disentangle the uh, immaterially grounded will from this uh, maybe uh, uh, embodied power that looks very similar but is maybe not quite? Yeah, so I have a paper on this in New Blackfriars called Approaching Other Animals with Caution. And um, it engages in some of this topic. Uh, one thing that's interesting on Thomas, when he treats the, the, the will and, and practical reason together in the human action story from question six through 17, the prima, prima secundae, he'll go through the second or third article in a lot of those questions is, is there intensio in the other animals? Is there consensus in other animals? Is there usus in other animals? And the tendency is to read that, well, I'm gonna make 12 distinctions about human action, I'm only gonna make the same answer every time to that question in other animals. I'm just gonna say natural instinct. And what I try to do that paper is try to read this in a more nuanced way that, not to be confused at all with the will, but there is some sort of embodied power that's highly limited, but has some parity in some ways, but highly diminished, because it's not informed by reason with what's going on there. I mean, if I were to fill it out, I would say that the strategy is to introduce some technical term, don't call it the will, I would highly dispute the claim, though, that like a five-choice task that a mouse or a rodent is engaged in is anything like what practical reasoning or decision-making is in a human. The other issue, of course, is your colleagues are probably working with from a broadly, out of a kind of broadly behavioral economics kind of conception of decision-making, and that conception of decision-making owes a lot to Hume and Mill, and that's fundamentally at odds with the Aristotelian conception of practical reasoning. Decision-making doesn't function with a kind of, as McIntyre would say, a fiction that's called a utility calculus. Um, so. That's one perfect example of an entire research paradigm on decision-making that has really detailed accounts about the axioms of decision-making and how you can operationalize this in an experiment, how you can even operationalize in an experiment with rodents. But the concept that's been operationalized there is fundamentally at odds. So like a lot of Thomas will cite like somebody like Antonio Damasio because he like shows us that the emotions and passions are important for practical reasoning. But his decision theory is this same sort of behavioral economics conception of decision theory. And he has a Jamesian view about emotions. He doesn't think emotions are like intentional object directed. He thinks emotions are, what are my bodily feelings? Oh, I'm, I'm angry, right? That's very different than Thomas's view about what an emotion is. If you're angry, it's because there's some intentional object that makes you angry. It's not, my blood is boiling, oh, I must be angry. Um, but that's why this Jamesian conception of emotion that's in Damasio. So, even if Damasio tries to use the stuff from Phineas Gage and then replications of the Phineas Gage stuff to try to show us um, that parts of the frontal temporal lobe won't work well with the decision making if you don't also have the emotions going on. His view about the emotions is whack from a Thomas point of view. His view about decision making is a rival theory that you're gonna have to wanna reject. And McIntyre has a really good essay comparing a practical reasoning account from a, human, from a Thomas point of view from decision theory, both in Ethics and the Conflicts of Modernity and in, uh, there was a volume that I think Tobias Hoffman edited for CUA Press a number of years ago on incontinence or acrasia, and McIntyre has a paper in there called Conflicts of Desire, and he does a pretty detailed comparison of the two different views. So anyway, there's a lot to your really, really rich, hard question. That's probably enough for what I'm allowed to say on, on that topic just right now. Um. Uh, thank you, Professor DeHaan. This yeah. really fascinating, rich talk. I'm glad you squeezed everything in. Um, so this is actually getting back to the, your kind of broader point or first point about the need for a kind of phenomenology 
to to actually start doing this Thomistic anthropology or Thomistic psychology. And so I know you're not talking about like necessarily like phenomenology, like the tradition of phenomenology, maybe drawing on some of that. But I mean, the, the way that tradition has gone, I think probably because of worries about like the contextual nature of our phenomenology, it's kind of like tradition, like phenomenology today is kind of weird. Um, and insofar as we're trying to give like an account of human nature that's like universal and not just like contextualized to like our time now, Indeed. how do we like, do you have thoughts about how to balance how we're using phenome phenomenology to do this kind of work? Yeah. So I have a paper on here that's in that a ACPQ um, issue that um, it's called A Heuristic for Thomistic Philosophical Anthropology. It's got a long subtitle, not surprising. Um, and I talk quite a bit about phenomenology and the phenomenological tradition and the ways in which the Wittgensteinian tradition can critique the phenomenological tradition, the ways in which the phenomenological tradition can critique the Wittgensteinian one, but also the importance for a kind of historical ethno-psychology of recognizing our psychological categories are weird. Are you familiar with Heinrich and Heinz weird? Western educated, industrialized, rich democratic subjects, so all psychology is on weird people. And I mean, so you have to try to think through that, right? Like. You're, the concepts we naturally gravitate towards in our phenomenology and naturally gravitate towards in our, in our common sense psychology are going to be weird in, in, in ways that are going to be limited. They've been influenced by a lot of Western categories. And so how do you respond to the very kind of like ethno-psychological question that you just asked? And what I tried to talk about very briefly in that paper in, in a middle section is how do you mitigate some of the, exactly those precise issues that you were talking about? Um, it's, but one thing to... Th one thing is to recognize the way in which it will always start local. Um, all of these activities start local. Um, you start with the, the kind of native language that you have. You start with the way in which people in your area, if you have parents that are like naturalists or parents that are evangelical Christians or parents that are psychologists or parents that had been New Age, they're going to influence the sort of psychological nomenclature that you use to think about yourself and how you engage in practical reasoning. And there's efforts to try to transcend that. And phenomenology is trying to do that in, in various ways. And Wittgensteinian ordinary language philosophy is doing that in other ways. So it's a really, really hard question. And there I you know, give kind of two pages to what I think are ways to try to think through some of those issues. So yeah. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, I just want to know how you differentiate the hylomorphic position from, you know, when you talk about the psychological, the sub-psychological co-manifesting, you said this is not Churchland's reductive physicalism. When you talk about the top-down causation, this is not Phil Clayton's strong emergence. And when you talk about Phantasm 2.0, this is not Chalmers' qualia. Um, so how do you differentiate the hylomorphic position in terms of this maybe Fantasia 2.0 from the other um, paradigms, or maybe maybe the Chalmers um, paradigm. Thanks. Yeah, so, I mean, so let's take just sort of, let's just take, um, so I said about the reductive physicalist view, like a psychophysical reduction theory, that you're gonna have to go look at the paper, um, the one I just mentioned that talks about that, um, and you could type, you could cert do a search, psychophysical reductionism, and read the two page, or I think maybe a page on that. Uh, on emergentism, you could read one of the other papers that's on there where I compare hylomorphism and emergentism. I'm sorry, I'm kind of kicking the buck down, but I did write papers on these, so I can not make Dominic too nervous about trying to answer really long questions. Um, the thing about qualia is, you know, Chalmers has a point when it comes to, like, his qualia zombies. He has a point to how cognitive scientists are thinking about 
cognitive information processing and cognitive neuroscience. It's totally like a sub-psychological thing, and we could just be totally dark on the inside. So the philosophical zombies is a, is a nice challenge in some ways to what just sort of the everyday activity of cognitive neuroscience is. They're talking about cognition, beliefs, desires, memories are all, all in a model of information processing, maybe some kind of neural network or machine learning system, something like that, predictive processing. But there's nothing going on. There's no light going on. And so what they're trying to do is then eke in some distinct kind of properties that have that light. And you know, it's a good internal critique of a certain kind of approach, but that's you know, just because you've shown someone else is digging themselves in a hole, the next way forward is not jumping into the hole. Um, and so that's kind of my view about Thomas that try to like work within philosophy of mind to try to like navigate within it. I don't think that's the right way to go. Like they've dug themselves in a hole. Don't share those. I mean, you're just going to mangle either their views or your own views. You're either going to beg the question against them or undermine fundamental commitments that you have. So there obviously some sort of argumentative engagement has to be done, but it's going to be more complicated how one has to do it. Um, yeah, I just, it's a really important question you ask, um, and it would take quite a while to work through the differences of it. But one of the things is, is just you give a very different phenomenological description of what it is to be conscious of objects. And it's not like just having these, these qualia or these qualia that are often framed as, you know, qualia is a very d distinct theoretical notion within philosophy of mind. It doesn't just mean like being aware of something or seeing a color or having a taste. It has distinct features in different debates. Sometimes it's non-relational, so it's like non-causal. It's thought to be non-analyzable. Dennett has a whole bunch of arguments about that in an essay called Quine and Qualia. I mean, it's a different kind of theoretical construct, so don't treat phantasms and Quinas as if they're like a type of qualia. That's, there's so many levels of transposition that have to be worked through. So again, an excellent question. I'm sorry to disappoint. I didn't directly answer it. Um, but I hope I hinted at ways of getting around it. But I have talked in detail about the differences between emergent strong emergentism and hylomorphism. And then I briefly talk about the differences with uh, reductive physicalism. So. so this question is kind of a finger on the, the question you were just talking about. I guess the big worry that I'm having for this account is um, from the contemporary philosophy mind perspective as well, that what you've done is you've reduced intellect and will to a kind of epiphenomenal position. Because even if you've got... Fantasia 2.0 manifesting on these on these lower order um, analysis of subpsychology, etc. It seems like you, there's a you could have your whole story the way you want it, and then intellect and will still have no causal power. They're just operating kind of in tandem at the same time as these other powers. But I'm not. It's not clear to me how the intention is then being responsible for the exterior act. Let's say of walking across the street or whatever example you want. I mean, would you say the same thing about memory and perception, that there's no difference between memory and perception for the same reasons, because they're co-manifesting? No, that's fine, because they're both on the sub-psychological level, uh, or no, analyzable on the sub-psychological no, level. Are you saying the sub-psychological level does the whole story for the memory and the emotion? I'm, not, I'm trying to understand at what level you're trying to introduce an objection. So it's only for the intellect and will that the problem would exist. But why? Because they don't have the two-level analysis of psychological and sub-psychological like the, all the other powers. But why, why is that the important objection there? Because then where's the causal power? No, but no, no, so sorry, I, I, was, I, I wasn't clear enough. The sub-psychological components have causal powers that are proprietary to them. But they often manifest in coordinated manifestations because of the distinct causal powers of memory or the distinct causal powers of perception. Perception has whole proprietary powers to the whole of the power of perception to which none of its components have. 
its causal juice doesn't come from the components. Although it's constituted out of them and it depends upon them, they're necessary conditions for it, but the causal powers of perception are distinct contributions from whatever its material constituents are. It can't manifest without those material constituents, but what it does is different than what those material constituents do. I mean, obviously there's a long argument for that. Um, but again, that's not like contentious for the new mechanists. Um, and so the point would be is that I would think that then the argument that you're running would, would have to affect any of these powers. Like because emotion, or say perception and emotion co-manifest, there's really not a difference between the two of them. But the point is that they're contributing something differently. You need the two powers because perceptions informing about things in the environment, but it's not like executive perhaps, but the emotions might be executive or the emotions might give rise to a um, certain phenomenological expression in, in, in embodied activity. Um, and then the intellect and will, the reason why they're introduced, why any of these powers get introduced is because they're making distinct kinds of contributions. So I, I, I don't understand will, I, I don't think, um, I wasn't saying that the only reason the embodied powers are causally efficacious is because they have components that are causally efficacious. It's true their components need to be causally efficacious, the sub-psychological attributes, but they contribute to a distinct kind of causal contribution that the embodied power itself has. Does that make sense? So, because otherwise it would be a kind of reductive physicalism or a kind of non-reductive physicalism where everything going on psychologically is really just the physical components that are causally efficacious. So. I think that probably more would have to be run for why, how that argument would work. Um, I, I don't even know why they would be a phenomenon. I don't even know why you would posit intellect and will if they weren't doing the kind of distinct sort of thing. So from the embodied psychological perspective, all you really ever get is co-variation. Like what Hume has to say is basically right about how these, sub, these psychological embodied powers operate. But if you have genuine formal determination of formal logical conception, you know, features, things that James Ross talks about in his immaterial aspects of the, of, of the intellect um, or of thought, uh, if you have like, you know, modus ponens and that can't be realized by any holy physical system, that's gonna be the starting point for an argument for why these intellectual powers have to be disembodied and why they make distinct contributions and why they can bring about the rational transformation and organization of the manifestations of the embodied powers that would be the starting point for how you would have got there. So then I don't know how you could have then run a later argument to say, well, at the end of the day, they're actually just epiphenomenal. The only reason you got them on the table is because they were making some causal difference. Yeah. This is just a question about whether you could, I, I, I'm not sure I understand entirely the, the um, distinction between the psychological and the sub-psychological mm -hmm. levels. Um, I guess I was thinking you have capacities on the handout um, and I wasn't sure, I, I guess originally when I was thinking about it, I was thinking that the sub-psychological was the operation in that part of the um, matter of the ensouled being, um, which uh, which was the matter of the power. Um, is, is that the right way to think about it? So the capacities and the activities of the sub-psychological are going to be things like the eye. And the power is vision. So when the eye is having activities, those are sub-psychological activities. And those sub-psychological activities materially constitute the power of the eye, or power of vision, and it has its own activities. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, and then I guess that just to follow up on that was then, then when you're, you were discussing sort of the modalism of uh, St. Thomas oh, yeah. with regard to that, um, that it, it seemed odd that you, or it seemed odd to me that you that you commented that you thought it didn't really matter which position you t took because it almost seemed like you would have 
one organ with multiple powers, which maybe isn't, maybe is not a philosophical problem, but it occurred to me that that I don't. So I don't know if you have an explanation of that. That's a great question. So I mean, one thought here is that there's just lots of material components, and they can enter into different hylomorphic organizations, which and as sub-psychological components of different psychological p attributes or powers. Um, I mean, Aquinas has some of these things doing double duty for different kinds of, um, I mean, he thinks the front ventricle is both, well, sometimes there's like a line they draw and the census communis is like on top and, or comes first and then the, the imagination comes later. Aquinas doesn't give us a diagram, unfortunately, but there's little illustrations and probably not by Albert, but they're like in Albert's, um, Albert's Danima and things like that. Um, so, I, okay, so it matters, but the point is I think hylomorphism is plastic enough that it can deal with whatever those empirical theories ends up being true, whether it be, um, whether it be holism or modularity or the reuse. Hylomorphism doesn't require that the material components have to only be co-opted and used in one sort of system. I mean, just take like the hand and the kind of activities and the human actions that you can ha do with the hand, right? I mean, they can be part of a, an act of murdering, you know, they can be a part of a handshake, they can be signing a contract. That's not curious that the hand can be implemented in all those different kinds of psychological actions, right? And there's a further, of course, difficult issue of how you exactly individuate these, these organs. Um, that's why a lot of people just talk about different kinds of systems, um, because the systems can have overlapping components that function in different kinds of ways. Um, so sometimes, the medial temporal lobe where the hippocampus and other things are at are relevant for recognition in an auditory way. Sometimes they're important for recognition in a visual way. And sometimes we hear and see and recognize together. And so you could have those different kind of contexts, right? Like right now, you, you can both hear me and you can see me, right? But sometimes you can only hear me and sometimes you might only be able to see me. But yet you might be using the same neural system that's helping to recognize you. The same psychological components are important for underlying the powers of recognition. Does that make sense or not? Okay. It's a, it's, it's, it's a really good question, but I, th that's roughly the, the, the kind of way that I would respond to that. Um, it is tricky. How do you individuate these powers? That's really hard. How do you individuate these, these organs and these neural systems? Do you do it in a bottom-up way? Do you do it in a top-down way? And basically the way I'm talking about the psychological and sub-psychological is use the psychological to individuate whatever sub-psychological material components are required for that power to operate. And that's going to be a largely empirical question, which is going to be really hard because you have to figure out the varieties of ways you can operationalize in an experiment, that psychological concept. So then you can go around and do the kind of stuff Hope does in an MRI machine where you're like trying to figure out what the neural correlates are to some sort of specific activity.